Russia wants to extinguish Ukraine as an independent state. And Ukrainians will resist. How successful it will be, at what cost? That's the variable that depends on external support. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Yaroslav Trofimov, is the chief foreign affairs correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, the Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Yaroslav Trofimov is a veteran journalist who has covered conflicts around the world. He also happens to have been born and raised in Ukraine. In the book, he offers a first-hand account of the war and really explains the conflict from a Ukrainian perspective. We caught up not long after there was a major prisoner swap between Ukraine and Russia, so I kick off by asking him about the significance of prisoner exchanges and what it means, if anything, for the trajectory of the conflict. We also discuss the recent major missile barrage on Kyiv, which was the single largest attack since the start of the war, and Ukraine's response to that attack. Much of our conversation focuses on some of the trends to follow in 2024, particularly as there is significant doubt about whether or not the United States Congress can pass a funding bill to support Ukraine's defense. The book is great. I'll post a link to it in the show notes of this episode. I could not more highly recommend it. So I am really excited for what we have in store for the podcast in 2024. We have some great episodes in the pipeline that I'm really excited to bring to you. Also, listen, 2024 marks the 11th year of Global Dispatches. A huge thank you to you, the listener, who have stuck with us for so long. You know, I'll often get emails from listeners who explain how this show has impacted their life and career. And it really makes me feel grateful to be able to do what I do and to impact your life in some way or another. So thanks. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We have a huge archive. You can check it all out at globaldispatches.org or directly in whatever app you're using to listen to me right now. And if you're using Spotify, be sure to click the little 
bell icon to get notified when new episodes are published. And if you're an Apple Podcasts, be sure to enable downloads so you get episodes as soon as they are released. Now, here is my conversation with Yaroslav Trofimov, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. So, Yaroslav, I just want to kick off by saying how much I am enjoying your book. I'm at this point about 80% through. I'm sure I'll finish it tonight. And it has just so enriched my understanding of the war from Ukrainian perspectives. Just thank you for writing it. It's an absolutely invaluable resource. I'm so happy you liked it. So there is a scene in your book that's pertinent to something that happened just last week, which was a major prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine. Can you put this newest prisoner exchange in context of other prisoner swaps throughout the war? And like, what are the mechanics of these swaps? Well, the mechanics are pretty complicated, and they usually involve third parties. The United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Saudi Arabia have all played a major role in these negotiations because they do maintain pretty close relations with both Ukraine and Russia. The most important of these exchanges happened September 2022, after uh, Ukraine had swept through the Kharkiv region, taking a lot of senior prisoners among Russian forces, including lieutenant colonels and other officers. And that allowed Ukraine to have this bargaining chip to trade some of the people they wanted most, including the commanders uh, of the defense of Mariupol, Azovstal, and some of the other top prisoners. But of course, Russia has significantly more POWs than Ukraine especially because it took thousands when Mariupol was surrendered after a long siege in 2022. So this latest swap came after a pause. And if you look at the people who were released this time, some of them were taken the very first days of the war on Snake Island, which was really a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. You know, there's these famous words, you know, Russia should go fuck yourself. That was said by a radio operator on that island when the Russian cruiser Moscow arrived there. So some of the prisoners that were swapped from the Ukrainian side were those defenders of Snake Island. And actually, in your book, you tell the story of the defense of Snake Island and that famous incident in which, as you said, there's like a famous radio relay. Right. So basically, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet and other vessels arrived at this island, which is a strategic little outcropping south of Odessa that controls all the major seafaring lanes into Odessa and demanded that the Ukrainian garrison, pretty small garrison, they didn't like that much weaponry, on the island surrender. And the Ukrainians refused, so the Russians bombarded the island after first offering them you know, service in the Russian army and high salaries and beautiful future. And then they bombarded again. And then when the Russians came up with the ultimatum, the rest of the Ukrainian military was listening to the radio traffic from Odessa, and then they heard one of the defenders, the radio man, saying, Russian ship, go fuck yourself. And then the radio transmission stopped, and the Ukrainians, including President Zelensky, assumed that the Russians basically killed all the defenders. And so a legend was born. 
And every billboard in Ukraine in those weeks was covered with these words, Russian ship, go fuck yourself. So that was in February 2022. What happened really is that the defense were not killed. They were taken prisoner and were in prison for nearly two years, released only recently, most of them. Some of them were freed earlier. But then, of course, Ukraine took its revenge in April that year. One cruiser Moscow, you know, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the most powerful vessel of the fleet, approached the area of Snake Island, actually not too far from there, and was killed by Ukrainian missiles and sank, which was the first of the many major blows against Russian naval power in this war. And so it was some of those defenders of Snake Island and others that were released in this major prisoner swap. Why do you suppose that these swap happened when it did? I think the dynamic of these swaps is sort of divorced from the battlefield dynamic. You know, if you remember the Azovstal defenders swap, it happened at the time where Putin was threatening the use of nuclear weapons against Ukraine, nuclear mobilization, and exiting Ukrainian regions. So the negotiations are painstaking, and it's all about lists, you know, who gets swapped for whom the Russians have their people, Ukrainians have their people. At the time, for example, during Azovstal, one of the people who were traded for Ukrainian prisoners was Medvedchuk, the head of the main pro-Russian party, and uh, Putin was the godfather of his daughter. So he was almost family to Putin. And so Medvedchuk was under house arrest when the war began. He managed to escape. He was in hiding. He was captured and traded for Ukrainian POWs. This sort of bargaining is on its different separate track from the main war. Well, that's interesting because this prisoner exchange happened during a time of really sharp escalation in the war. Kyiv has received the most like intense bombardment of Russia missiles really since the start of the war. Can you just kind of put this recent Russian attack barrage on Kyiv and other cities in broader context? And how does it compare to other attacks on Kyiv in the past? Like everything else, this war goes in phases. So when the Russians began the war, when the forces were at the gates of Kyiv, there was a lot of missile and artillery fire into the city, mostly looking to hit military targets, but often missing and hitting civilians. Then there was a long lull. There was a lull through most of 2022. It was very rare that Kyiv was targeted. Life resumed pretty much normally all the way until Ukraine blocked the bridge between Crimea and Russia in October that year. And Russia was already by then stocking up on missiles and the Russian plan, the plan of General Sorovikin, the newly named uh, commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, was to try and destroy Ukraine infrastructure. And so all the stockpile of missiles was lobbed from October and throughout much of the winter of 2022, 2023, at power stations, water purification stations, dams, and power lines, power transmissions throughout Ukraine, but especially in Kiev. And the goal really was to take lights out. The idea was to make Ukrainians starve, freeze. You know, most Ukrainian lives in apartment buildings that require electricity to flush water, that require electricity to heat, you know, and uh, the pipes would just burst if there is no warm water. And so the Russians came pretty close to causing this blackout that winter. There was a blackout of a couple of days at the worst of it, but never quite succeeded. And Ukraine managed to rebuild. 
managed to restore its uh, electricity grid. And so while the barrages now are quite intense, they're not happening daily. We're a couple of days of really, you know, close to 100 missiles flown into Kiev and other cities, but they haven't been able to take lights out. They haven't been able to cause blackouts so far this year, and we're already halfway through the really cold season in Ukraine. The days are getting longer. And obviously, Ukraine also has much better air defenses. Patriot missiles were there, and so are the RSTs and ASAMs provided by Germany. So despite the fact that Russia launched what has been described as like the single heaviest barrage against Kiev since the start of the war, the actual impact of those attacks has been relatively limited. Obviously, there was like the tragic loss of life, but in terms of like societal impact, it hasn't been huge. Right. I mean, the, the, if you look at the, in the loss of life, actually, it was pretty significant. There was a day when more than 30 people died in Kiev, which was perhaps one of the worst days of the entire war. But if you look at the impact on the economy, on society, on the functioning of the country in general, it's pretty limited. Things that work, the shopping malls are open, you know, people go to work, public transportation, kids go to school. So the country is trying to live a normal life as much as it's possible, despite these needed daily reminders. So why do you suspect that Russia launched this new heavy missile attack volley when it did at the start of the year? Well, in part, it's to remind Ukraine of its vulnerability. In part, it has a very clear purpose of trying to exhaust the Ukrainian air defenses. And let's just look at the broader picture. So throughout this whole war, Russia has not been able to enjoy air superiority level of supremacy anywhere in Ukraine except in Mariupol during the future Mariupol. In Mariupol, it flattened the city using dumb bombs. Dropped a bomb in a theater, sheltering children. It dropped a bomb in the hospital. It really was, you know, in terms of visual landscape, not different from what we're seeing in Gaza now or what we saw in Aleppo. And elsewhere in Ukraine, the casualties are much more limited because Russian planes, which are being shot down. So Russia's biggest goal in this war is to dent and weaken Ukrainian air defenses. Ukraine's Soviet systems, the S 300s, pretty much have run out of missiles because. Ukraine doesn't make them and has nowhere to buy them. They're made in Russia. And the Western systems are expensive, the Patriots, the NASAMs, the RSTs. And Russia is betting that, you know, Ukraine is going to run out of these missiles and with no American funding forthcoming, you know, Russia would then destroy the batteries themselves. Then finally we'll have a free hand to drop lots of these dumb bombs on the Ukrainian cities. Wow. So, so really, they're just doing it to exhaust the existing stockpiles of Ukrainian air defense on the assumption that Congress won't re-up authorization for funding for new air defenses and what, like other European countries probably don't have much capacity on their own to support Ukraine's air defense? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, they're not just sh shooting dumb targets. Uh, I mean, they, they're also trying to hit things. But the manner in which they are conducting this with this very intense barrages that are combined with drone attacks, also aim to destroy the actual Patriot Raiders, Patriot launchers, and nobody knows whether they've had much success. The Russians have claimed success, Ukraine has denied it, it's all shrouded in secrecy. So far, the Patriots are working, but if you look at the list of targets that Russia has had in the last they were also trying to hit Ukrainian military industries or what they thought were locations where Ukrainian military industries are. 
because Ukraine, understanding that there's a threat of a cutoff in American aid and maybe Western aid in general, is trying to localize as much production as possible. And Ukraine, you know, before the war was a big manufacturer of all sorts of weapons, it made tanks, it made helicopter engines, plane engines, and missiles, and, and other things. And so a lot of the Ukrainian government effort now is, for example, to make domestically produced drones and missiles, partly because Ukraine is not allowed to use Western weapons to strike targets inside Russia. It's only allowed to use these American and Western-provided weapons to strike targets inside occupied Ukraine. So it cannot respond to fire coming from across the border. So your answer just now, I mean, it really harkens to a recurring theme in your book, which is that, you know, Russia seems to have like an unlimited supply of ammunition, while Ukraine is really working with rather limited resources, at least in comparison to Russia. So Russia just has this like overwhelming ability to send both missiles and also like men to the front, whereas Ukraine is rather limited. And now we've seen like the next iteration of this in which Russia has apparently acquired missiles from North Korea. What do you see as the significance of that development, which just last week uh, on, I believe, Thursday, January 4th, the United States like announced that they had intelligence that this is indeed is the kind of missile that Russia is using now, our North Korean acquired missiles. Right. So there's an ebb and flow in all of this. If you look at the beginning of the war, especially not, not the very beginning, but maybe month two or three, when Ukraine began to run out of its Soviet standard ammunition, Russia had its overwhelming artillery advantage. Russian troops would fire 10, 20, sometimes 30,000 shells a day. Ukraine barely had 1,000 to fire. That changed because Russia also, it turned out, didn't have unlimited stocks. And the U.S. started and the allies started supplying Western standard ammunition. And the Russian artillery systems are, as a rule, a lot less precise than the Western ones. And also Ukrainian artillerists, because they had always worked shortage of ammunition, usually are more qualified and should, should in a more precise fashion, especially because of the integration of drones in Ukrainian artillery. Fast forward to the summer of 2023, Ukraine received hundreds of thousands of shells from South Korea, and Russia was running low because it had exhausted its own stocks. And there was a period during the Ukrainian counteroffensive which didn't achieve major results, where Ukraine actually, throughout the battlefield in the late summer of 2023, had an advantage in the number of artillery shells. If we look at people, again, Ukraine was able to carry out this extremely successful offensive in the fall of 2022 in Kharkiv and then in Kherson because it actually had an advantage in manpower. Ukraine had mobilized and deployed soldiers in hundreds of thousands, whereas Russia had its professional army destroyed and decimated in the, in the initial battles. And President Putin was resisting for political reasons, close to mobilized reservists up until September 2022, which meant that only about 100,000 Russian combat troops were left in Ukraine at the time. Again, after the mobilization, now the Russians have several hundred thousand in Ukraine, and Ukraine is facing a manpower shortage. So these things kind of come and go. And again, when it comes to missiles, it's true that Russia is having a hard time producing new missiles because of the sanctions, though it's probably more successful than Ukrainians had hoped for. And that's why it came to 
North Korea, it came to Iran asking for help. You know, Iran provided Russia with these Shahid drones that have played a major role in the Russian war effort and are very efficient. They can fly anywhere in Ukraine. And they are cheap. It takes a lot of money to shoot them down. And even one out of 50 breaks through the Ukrainian defenses, it could still destroy significant infrastructure. And obviously, North Korea had just supplied Russia with several hundred artillery shells as well. So, so you're seeing this uh, hardening of the Russia-Iran-North Korea military alliance, which wasn't really in place before this war, which is worrying because it also means that Russian military technology is flowing the other way, enabling North Korea to do things that destabilize East Asia, enabling Iran to do things that destabilize the Middle East. So you mentioned earlier that there is this agreement between the Biden administration and Ukraine that Ukraine will not use weapons from the United States to attack targets within Russia. But we have seen in recent days Ukrainian attacks within Russia in response to this barrage on Kyiv. Ukraine attacked the city of Belograd. From like a Ukrainian perspective, like what's the decision-making calculus in deciding whether or not to strike within Russia? Because these strikes are somewhat rare in the context of this conflict. I mean, they're not unheard of, but they don't happen like on a daily or even weekly basis. If you look at the past 12 months, Ukrainian drone strikes inside Russia were not that rare. Most of these drones get shot down, but once every couple of weeks, there is a drone that hits a fuel storage facility, a military airfield, some sort of military base, pretty far away from uh, Ukrainian borders. You know, there were Ukrainian drone strikes in Moscow several times. On the airfields, housing Russian strategic aviation that can potentially carry nuclear weapons in the cities of Angus. Ukraine has been striking in Russia for quite a while. And in Belgorod region, if you remember, several months ago, the Russian anti-Putin forces working under Ukrainian leadership actually crossed the border and held a couple of villages for several days. But the question is capacity, because again, Ukraine doesn't have the ability to use this long-range, high-precision Western weapons inside Russia, the way it's using them, for example, in Crimea. In Crimea, Ukraine has been extremely effective using British and French-supplied cruise missiles to target Russian naval facilities, destroying ships and submarines and targeting military airfields and making life miserable for the Russian Black Sea Fleet. But it can do the same, for example, in Novorossiysk, the, the sort of the backup base of the Russian fleet. So I think the calculus is twofold. First of all, is deterrence. Basically, by displaying an ability to strike inside Russia, Ukraine creates a bargaining card for itself saying that, well, you know, if you don't stop striking Kiev, we will not stop striking your country. Obviously, Russia has a lot more firepower, but Ukrainian ability is not negligible, especially if its drone program develops. And Ukraine is also working on modernizing its S-200 missiles that it is using more and more to lower the targets uh, pretty far away from the border in Russia. So one key variable going forward this year, 2024, an election year, is the question of whether or not the U.S. Congress approves a supplemental funding bill to support Ukraine's defense. What happens if no new Ukraine supplemental bill is provided? I mean, the one thing we know for sure is that a lot more Ukrainians will die. I mean, every delay in funding, every delay in sending, especially in ammunition, to these outgun units just means that there will be more and more casualties. 
And there will be also, obviously, there are fewer and fewer air defenses. There will be also more civilian casualties in Ukrainian cities. The Ukrainians are going to keep fighting because what option do they have, really? You know, it's not like Putin is saying, let's sit down and agree on a, on a, on a peace deal. But the Russian goals in this war have not changed. The Russian goal is the regime change in Ukraine. Putin just a couple of weeks ago declared that Odessa is a Russian city. Medvedev, the former president of Russia and currently the head of Russia's ruling party, said that Kiev is a historical Russian city that must be liberated. And so we're still facing the same problem that there was there at the very beginning of the war where there was no Western support. Now, Russia wants to extinguish Ukraine as an independent state and Ukrainians will resist. How successful they will be, at what cost, that's the variable that depends on external support. And obviously, even the US, if US support flags, Ukraine's neighbors in Europe are still going to remain committed because many of them know that they could be next if Russia actually manages to take over Ukraine, countries like Poland. And Germany is doing all it can now to expand its support for Ukraine because for Germany as well, it's an immediate national security problem. Lastly, you know, as we enter 2024, what are some of the key trends or even inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you what the trajectory of this conflict may look like throughout the year? Well, first of all, obviously, we're looking at the battlefield. And if we look at the battlefield, the front lines haven't really moved in the past year. Here and there, but I saw, I saw a calculation that all in all, in the past 12 months, Russia increased its control of Ukraine from 18.01% to 18.02%. 0.01% at the cost of tens of hundreds of thousands of lives. So the one thing to watch is whether any of the sides manages a breakthrough territorially. But the other thing to watch is obviously the coherence and the internal tensions in the societies. We obviously saw all the strife in Russia in 2022 with the by Evgeny Prigozhin, who was later killed in a plane crash. So that showed the strain of the war in Russian society. In Ukraine, we haven't seen that, but it could happen. There's the economic impact, the social impact, just you know, the fact that so many people are dying, obviously is, is also causing tensions in the society. So it's going to be a match between a contest of, of who will be more resilient over a long time. And obviously the key variable here is Western support, financial support, and military support, because Ukraine does need, still need ammo, and it needs to be able to resist. Well, Yaroslav, thank you so much for your time and for your really tremendous book. It's just like a brilliant collection of journalism. Thank you so much. Great to be on the show. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.